for July 23rd, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 212. And now over to Killer Croc for the sports. Welcome to the oh, sorry. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. That scratchy, scravelly, gravelly voice means that it must be our dark night cast for 2012. That's right. Uh, uh, don't don't, you, mean, don't you mean Dark Knight Rises cast? <laughs> I'm, wait, I'm sorry. Could you please speak up and or be overdubbed so that we can understand you a little better? <laughs> no. What That's is, right. <laughs> what accent is he doing there? I don't, I don't know. Oh, you will find out. You'll find out that and so much more, for we have answers for all the questions you haven't asked yet and all the ones we'll ask in the future. Uh, I'm Pete Fenzel because Matt Rather is in the United Kingdom fighting the Joker uh, in Oxford. I- <laughs> Uh, and so I'll be hosting an illustrious panel of Bat Scholars as we Bat discuss the Bat movie of the Bat Summer, or at least of Bat July. So uh, I will voluntarily forego my position in the alphabet in order to avoid being humiliated by being forced to forego my position in the alphabet for today's question. Oh, by the way, this whole podcast is going to be Dark Knight Rises spoiler heavy. We're hoping you've seen the movie at this point. We're going to be talking about the movie beginning to end. So if you haven't seen it, Pause the podcast, run, don't walk to the theater, watch The Dark Knight Rises, then walk back, looking both ways when you cross the street, and turn the podcast back on. We'll be here for you right when you get back. But first, gentlemen of the panel, your question of the week. If you, for some reason, had to fake your own death, what sign or signal would you leave behind to your loved ones to let them know you're secretly still alive? So coming to you, I believe this time from Brooklyn, New York, is Matthew Belinky. Are you in Manhattan now? Tell us what borough you're in, Matthew. This is very important. Yeah. Actually, uh, Mr. Mark Lee and I are, are basically neighbors now, and I'm, I'm podcasting from his new apartment. Oh, that's very exciting. So wait, so Mark, you're, does that mean you're not broadcasting from Brooklyn anymore? That is correct. <laughs> this is not going to get old at all. You've made your joke now, lie in it. But first, <laughs> Mark's new appointment is one of three garbage trucks that are roaming around the city. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He's occupying us all. Uh, so, Matt, if you were to fa- – I know that you have some loved ones uh, that you would want to let you. know that you were still alive. Uh, you're one of the people on the podcast who has people in their lives who would care if they were to go missing. Uh, actually, I feel that token role. <laughs> um, so tell us, give us the answer. What's up? All right. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Um, what I would do is I would wait until it's like, I don't know, like a few months after my death until that, like, the only people who are going to visit the grave are, like, the people who really count. And then I would have a engraver add a, uh, a winky face emoticon to the bottom of the tombstone. <laughs> so it would be like Matthew Blinky, 1980 to 2012. And then at the very bottom, it would be like semicolon, close parentheses. I think anyone who really matters to me would be like, oh, okay. Would you you kill the engraver? That's a good question. I think I would have to learn to engrave during like the six months (laughs) between when I faked my own death and when I would engrave the the emoticon. How hard can it be? Uh, engraving a tombstone? Tombstones, granted, is pretty hard. I feel like engravers like love to talk up how difficult their profession is. 
you run into a lot of them in bars? And I don't just know. Like- I just I feel like <laughs> engraving is one of those professions. You know, like like that they like to believe that like it's it's they're still like a. You know, they spend like eight years as journeymen, and they they have to be apprenticed at the age of four to be yep. able to like you know carve the you know whatever. I'm I'm not yeah, I'm not there's, there's, there's so much there's so much pro. entitlement there's so much entitlement in the media o- over the engraving profession and like how much we owe to them. It's like God, you can't turn on the news without hearing some engraver talking himself up. It's, it's like- ridiculous. <laughs> It's like there's some sort of secret society of stonemasons of some kind that is secretly uh, running things in this world. Uh, you could also hire two engravers, one to do the semicolon and one to do the parentheses, and each one wouldn't know uh, the total message. Although I guess although the second one, would <laughs> yeah, pretty much the second one would know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm workshopping it, people. I'm workshopping it. All right. <laughs> Okay, so it's time to jump to the next letter in the alphabet, and judging from the illustrious names before me, that's none other than the man, the only man to survive the pit, Mark Lee. <laughs> um, so I'm going with either like a complex series of Twitter accounts that have been like queued up by me and my accomplices uh, that, that, that tweet secret messages with the hashtag Mark is not dead. Um, I know it's going to be really subtle. Uh, people are gonna, not going to figure that one out at all. Uh, it's right. going to be either that or a uh, or a DVD copy of The Dark Knight Rises uh, with a <laughs> secretly with a, with a secret alternate ending with uh, with like I'm going to go splice in a single frame with me with a big winky face like you know similar to Belinky's like <laughs> you know, engraved emoticon. It's going to be one frame in you know, the however millions of frames in the in the entire two and a half hour long movie. There's like the, the shot of Batman like flying the nuke out, presumably to his death, and then it just pans over and you're in the cockpit with him, just like big thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you and me, buddy. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I definitely, I, yeah. As long as you're not Tyler Durden in it, like full frontal while you're doing it, I'd, I'd buy that DVD just to know that you were safe. Uh, <laughs> does not speak for all of us. That's, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so next in the alphabet, we got to move through because we got a lot of folks. We got John Perich. What up? What up? What up? So Mark took my idea. He sort of hinged on, or tiptoed around my idea, but I, I still think I have an original one. So what I would do is I would bury a coded note in my copy of the graphic or the collection of trade paperbacks a nightfall which is the first comic book appearance of bane in the batman comic book and i would leave a series of coded messages in there to whoever disposed of my estate after my so-called death in order that people would you know whoever found that would be able to figure it out presuming of course that somebody actually bothered to auction those off and didn't just bury them in a box somewhere because everyone has a copy of nightfall at this point in which case my secret death or stage death survival would go unremarked on for many years and i'd be sitting on a desert island somewhere with a nicely laid table and a bottle of champagne waiting for someone to show up who who would never ever arrive oh <laughs> kind of poetic <laughs> this is the well, part that I, uh, what, what's up well it's my fault for picking an obscure method i guess which no. i which i suppose which i suppose is the the overlying part like what happens if no one figures out your secret survival like what <laughs> what what do you do then you are still alive you can just send them an email at a certain point <laughs> <laughs> Like, yo, yo, dudes, I'm alive. Why didn't you tell us? I did. I thought you would have checked the thing and figured out the code and avoided the booby traps. And, oh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, man, it's okay. So we'll jump from there to Dave Schechner. Hello. Wait, are we still doing that? 
Uh, Mark was. I think uh, you were Batman at the beginning, right? So you can you can you have to pick a different Batman's voice. Oh, too. is this Batman? I thought, I thought we were doing exhausted transvestites at the end of the night. <laughs> Get over here. Wait, that's yeah. Scorpion. Is that your drag name? Is that- so you, so you, you know my stage name, my glam girl stage name. Yeah, that's right. I think – so I'm, I'm really notoriously bad at keeping secrets and this would sort of be the ultimate secret and, and the temptation would just be too great to, to do this anyway. But I think what I would probably do – is get like a really terrible like Mark Twain uh, type costume, you know, like the big uh, foofy you know white mustache and the crazy Einstein hair and the seersucker suit, and then just attend my own funeral as a long lost uncle and eulogize myself. <laughs> um, and but you know, I, I mean, I'm terrible at keeping secrets, but I, I'm pretty good at committing to a bit. So I would refuse to admit that I'm actually Dave Schechner, and I'm good enough at planting DNA evidence that I could probably fake my own personality. So I would just basically a- adopt a new personality as some like terrible Mark Twain impersonator. That's the way so, I'm going. So you'd go, you'd be a Mark Twain impersonator, not a Samuel Clemens impersonator. It's a different uh, job. I mean, you know, by day I'm a mild-mannered Mark Twain impersonator, but at night uh, I transform into the Clementarian. <laughs> so you would you would go to your own funeral like in what is that Tom Sawyer, right? Yeah. And yeah, so, exactly. Exa- hence, yeah, hence, yeah, yeah. So what other what other scenes from famous Mark Twain books would you do in your second life? I'm you know, at this, at this point, uh, had you planned something like this, you probably would have read more Mark Twain than. Just- <laughs> <laughs> but that's I like to play it. I like to play it fast and loose. Which I'm pretty sure is also the title of a Mark Twain novel, right? <laughs> yes, it's a Mark Twain novel that was turned to a Freddie Prince Jr. buddy cop film. Yeah, exactly. Sure. All right. <laughs> All right, we're coming along the bad train here, Jordan. What do you got for me? Jordan Stokes, ladies and germs. <laughs> well, the, uh, the first person that I would want to tell after faking my death is my wife, because I love her dearly. And also because I have a key to her house, which is critical for the particular plan I've worked out here. And what I do is, like, I'd go in there every couple of days when I know she's at work, and I'd do nice little things. Like, I'd make sure that the DVR was recording her favorite shows, or I'll clean out the cat's litter box, or I'll, uh, I'll fold the laundry, or something like that. And every now and then, I'm also going to do something uh, nice, or do something romantic, like pull our wedding album out an inch or two on the bookshelf, or like steam up the bathroom mirror and draw a heart on it with my fingers, so that when she takes a shower, it mysteriously appears, and so on. The goal being that, at first, she's going to think that she's being haunted by a friendly ghost. <laughs> And I haven't actually thought it out any further than that. Like, <laughs> presumably, I would tell her at some point. But my, uh, my long-term plan is that when I finally do reveal that I'm alive, she'll be mad at me primarily for, uh, for sort of gaslighting her and not for, like, faking my own death and not telling her about it, which is a pretty colossal dick move. <laughs> yeah, you could leave her notes in rose red on the walls. And <laughs> yeah, 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 right? <laughs> It's it's a dick move comparable to what Jim Gordon pulled off in The Dark Knight, you know, faking his death and not telling his wife about it. And wow. apparently she didn't take it well. No. No, apparently not. Apparently not. All right. So, so I'm the last one. Uh, so I'm going to say that I would go on television and I would make a speech in which I clearly laid out a case for reasonable and rational reform of the American educational system. And no one would listen. So my anonymy would be safe. Uh, my phone, please hear the sound of my voice and i'm assuming that maybe one of them wouldn't see my hair or something okay so dark night rises movie of the year or movie of the all the time 
Yeah. <laughs> 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 all right, all right, all right. So there's a lot of angles to take on this. Um, Can we just very quickly get our impressions out of it, like uh, just out on the table in terms of how, what we thought of it, like our enjoyment of it? We're not going to review it, right? But Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Talk it out. What's thumbs up, thumb, bat thumbs up, bat thumbs down? What are you feeling? What are your thoughts? How does it compare? <laughs> just like movies? very quickly, what I think is the critical consensus is thumbs up, great movie, not as good as The Dark Knight, which is pretty much an impossible thing to do, um, but hugely entertaining and satisfying. With, with problems, well, in, in, in the plot, uh, which... Uh, are excused because the rest of it was so great. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that, with the caveat that comparing anyone's... I, I think where it falls a little short is in the comparison of Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker in The Dark Knight versus the performance of any of the villainous characters in The Dark Knight Rises. And that's that's kind of an unfair comparison because Heath Ledger did just such a transformative job as the Joker that it's it's going to be almost impossible for anyone to stack up against that. So that being said, Anne Hathaway as Catwoman was phenomenal. I thought that, uh, that Tom Hardy did a great job too. I don't know about... Uh, is that not the consensus? Yeah, no. When you consider that he only had the top half of his face to work with, uh, I think he's a fantastic <laughs> actor. <laughs> right? Especially since, like, I kind of assume, when I think Tom Hardy, and maybe this reveals a lot about me, I think about those lips. He's got these, like, very pronounced lips, right? And you basically, like, block them off, you know, uh, for the entirety of the film. And that, that you know, I think, I think the amount of, of emotion he's still uh, able to elicit using just, you know, his eyebrows and punching uh, was pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Bane is a tough character to make plausible at all because he's so out there, right? Um, and because his previous interpretations have been so outlandish, you know, both in the Schumacher stuff and in the cartoon and all that other stuff. So I don't know. I think he seemed like a, did a pretty good job. Um, although I, the, the, the voice stuff was a little jarring, but that's been trotted out eight ways till Sunday. So we don't have to go into that too much. But yeah, no, I mean, I thought it was great. I don't know if it's impossible to make any movie that's as good as The Dark Knight ever. Um, I mean, would you guys, as, in terms of impressions, quick comparison, this versus Avengers, like which did you prefer? I, I probably am a little less excited about The Dark Knight Rises than you guys. I'm sort of, my current feeling is like maybe B, B minus to me because the, what I loved about The Dark Knight, and I know it always suffers from comparison, is that the first two movies were basically sort of crime thrillers, right? That The Dark Knight, you could rewrite that plot without superheroes and the story would still kind of make the sense uh, as like a cops versus robbers story. But this one, it's like by the time they're dragging the nuclear device through the streets and somehow even though it's like a like an experimental energy source that they've rigged as a bomb, they know to the second when it's going to explode. It just, it's too comic booky for me. And I, mm. I feel like they sort of... They, 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 they couldn't keep up the, the balancing act of, of making it real. Yeah. One, one moment that really stressed that sort of point for me was when Batman confronts Bane, right? And Bane's like, oh, so you've come here to die with Gotham or whatever. And Batman <laughs> says, no, I've come here to stop you. Right. And it's like it's just <laughs> it's just close enough to a superhero movie that I felt it was like conspicuously absent that there wasn't some sort of like riff or witty comment. Right. You know, it's like I, I kind of read that as though like there was a little pause right after that, too. Like Bane diegetically was expecting more. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, OK, so we're going to go with that. Then. <laughs> Is that your final font? <laughs> yeah. Do you want to do over on that? Cause <laughs> it's not. It's also, an <laughs> it's also an interesting scene in the context of Batman as a character and 
the sort of technical mastery he's displayed up till this point. Because in the original Batman Begins movie and in The Dark Knight, we see Batman approaching approaching very tricky physical obstacles and physical problems with a combination of martial arts acumen and gadgetry and strategic sophistication as well. Whereas his plan to finally deal with Bane in Gotham uh, after after he returns is to get all the cops in the city to run at him and then to find Bane in a crowd of thousands and punch him a lot. <laughs> punch him in the face yeah. until yep. he falls down. Oh, no, my face! <laughs> <laughs> it's also, it, it sort of depends on, you've got this guy who wears a mask that is clearly some kind of breathing device because it's got all the tubes on it, and he's notorious for never taking the mask on. Like, he, like even Carchetti at the beginning says, like, if I take off that mask, something bad will happen to you, right? And yet Batman needs to, like, have his mystical dream vision in the desert to realize, like, if I punch him in the mask, like, it's, it's the weak spot in his armor. <laughs> right, right, right. This isn't something that bothered me at the time. At the time, I was like, yes, now he knows to punch him in the mask. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I, believe, I believe the mask is, what, a painkiller? Like, he suffers from fibromyalgia or something? And, like, the mask, like, keeps him from suffering from intense pain all the time? Well, and that's he, what su- happens. He suffers from... He suffers from a conclusive prison beating in the world's worst prison. <laughs> Wait, hold it. Can I talk about the world's worst prison for a minute? Yeah. <laughs> because let me just say that for a prison that's supposed to be pretty much owned by Bane, everyone there is really nice to Bruce Wayne, right? <laughs> that, like, he gets top-notch medical attention. He gets any number of pep talks. That, like, it's yeah. less a prison than, like, a Tony Robbins inspirational retreat. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like a Batman Sports Club boot camp class is what it is. <laughs> Which, although I have to say, like, you know, I, I heard Christopher Nolan talking a lot about uh, how they wanted to make Bane be someone that you would really hate for the terrible things that he did. And if I had somebody, like, you know, pop out one of my vertebrae and then say, you are going to go to this Tony Robbins inspirational retreat. <laughs> and when you have been there for what I deem long enough, you have my permission to die. Like, that would be harsh (laughs) (laughs) Um, what does it say about our our, like system of medical care in this country that Blinky sees um, being hung up by a rope and punched in the back as an alternative to microspinal surgery as quote top notch medical care results based medicine (laughs) medicine. you know he should have been he should have been into preventative medicine right and you know what anybody in that country that older part of the world uh, can walk right into that prison and get punched in the back and they don't have to pay for it. You know? <laughs> and if they know parkour, they can leave whenever they want. It's yeah. pretty awesome. Oh, man. So what do you guys think of like the, the central conflicts of this movie, right? Because there's a lot of stuff in there about like class struggle and about affluence and about uh, complacency. Uh, what, what was your guys' impression of that whole aspect of the movie as, as it tells the story that, of Bruce Wayne and whatnot? I, I had a theory about this uh, when I was thinking about the movie that the entire trilogy, all the movies, are sort of a referendum on whether the people of Gotham City are a-holes or not. <laughs> right? Because in the first movie, uh, Liam Neeson in the League of Shadows is like, Gotham needs to be destroyed because all these people are decadent and corrupt and the city is terrible. And Batman's like, no, the people are good. It's just that like the 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 or the institutions have let them down, and then if we sort of prop them back up. The people will be good again. And in the second movie, the Joker's like, everyone is going to turn into like a monster if I give them a little push. That that they'll blow up the other fairy if I give them a chance. 
And Batman is like, no, they won't. You know, not, not everyone is as twisted as you are. And then the third movie, basically, the League of Shadows, once again, it's like, if we take away the police, everyone will eat the rich, which actually turns out to be correct. <laughs> so, so ultimately, the verdict is, yes, the people of, of Gotham are a-holes. Well, it's, it's interesting, because the thing is, like, do you take what Bane says that he is doing when he isolates Gotham at face value. Do you think that he's really interested in like sort of like leveling the playing field and letting the underclass get their revenge? Or do you, I don't, it's, it's, well, you, no, 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 this, kinda, this is, oh, well, ahead. you kind of, well, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate and say, you kind of have to hope that he does because otherwise, I mean, if his plan is ultimately to nuke Gotham, there's no reason for him to wait five months. Exactly. So, like, what what's the the organizational meeting be, be between the French girl from uh, from Inception? That's sorry, that's what I think of her as. And Bane, <laughs> what, is, what what are they agreeing that the evil plan is? Well, I think their their plan is twofold, right? Like, they want to fulfill. Um, I always pronounce it Rachel Ghoul. They they want to fulfill <laughs> Razal because Razal Ghoul sounds like um like an old Jewish lady to me. Anyway, and Rachel Gould doesn't. <laughs> Rachel, Rachel, Rachel Gould. Is, yeah, anyway, uh, it's, it's twofold. They want to they want to they uh, subsume old Rossi's uh, plan and like, see it to fruition, and, and they also want to break the their traitor from their organization's spirit at, at its fundamental level. Right? He, he like explains this when he drops them off in the um, in the prison. He's like, "I'm going to give them hope, and then uh, and let that that hope run amok, and then you know kill them anyway." Uh, just so you can see, you know, them fall even further for having yeah. hoped in the first place. So I feel like that the whole, um, you know, pseudo occupy, you know, nouveau socialist uh, utopia that he supposedly is setting up is just a way of like giving people false hope. But like, is that what the people of Gotham have? Like, while their city is sort of under siege and cut off from the civilized world, is is that like? Does everyone really enjoy that? It's hard to say. They don't really show too much of it. Certainly no. Catwoman's, like, girl-girlfriend, right? Her, like, the one from HBO Girls who, like, lives with her or whatnot. Yeah. Um, she seems to think it's a pretty cool thing, but they kind of gloss over that part of the movie a little bit, right? No, and I think uh, that's the most interesting part, in a way, yeah. is that, like, what do the people of Gotham think about this social experiment that's being performed on them? And that, yeah. like, when the cops finally emerge from the... Is every single police officer has been <laughs> shot down there. Um, sorry. <laughs> that, I mean, that, that's another one of those things that, like, I just sort of stopped taking the movie as seriously as it wanted to be taken. Well, um, Belinky, that's, that's standard operating procedure in all of the Batman movies. Whenever there's a crisis, send every cop in the city in it. That happens in <laughs> Batman Begins, that happens in Dark Knight, it happens here. Like, maybe the playbook needs changing, but it's, it's not distinct from the other two movies. They, they must have felt like you feel when, as Pac-Man, you get all the ghosts to follow you through the tunnel. And you're like, I can go anywhere I want. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You have that extra second. Oh, man. Um, I mean, I, I thought something interesting. There is definitely a shot where Bane sort of calls out to all the people to rise up, and then his own men step up and start causing a ruckus, right? Yeah. Sort of, And, the, and the, the sort of public picture is that these are the subaltern people. Oh, I said it. Yay, drink. Um, these are all the downtrodden people of Gotham <laughs> rising up. But they're not. They're like – they're the Foot Clan, right? That Bane yeah. has been keeping in his skate park like underground facility, uh, so it's you know yeah. it's definitely right. or, modeled after. Go ahead. Yeah, or the escaped prisoners, right? Right. 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 Prisoners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's very interesting that there's sort of kangaroo court, there's sort of French Revolution court where they're making all the eye bankers uh, walk out to their deaths on the ice. Is that like the guy that's presiding over it is? A criminal is the the, the guy. Yeah, from, it's, is the it's, it, it's Mad Hatter, right? Mad right. Hatter so is scarecrow. Is it really a populist thing, or is it sort of like 
is 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 what Christopher Nolan's trying to say is that like it's just more powerful interests that are using populism as a cloak for what they want to do anyway. I, I think that's what he's saying. Also, I would you want to point out that if it were true populism, there's going to be a really awkward time where it's like, all right, Bain said whatever we we could do whatever we want. Put all these desks on top of each other. It's like, well, I, 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 I want. like I'm just going to go to Saks Fifth Avenue and like start taking watches. Like, no. Put you're spending all afternoon putting these desks <laughs> on top of each other so that I can sit on top of them and tell people to walk on the ice. I don't know. No, it seems like it's supposed to be like a junta, right? It's like a left wing junta, right? That they take over and they sort of strong arm the populace and they use a lot of rhetoric. And it's unclear exactly what happens to like do all the rich people in those houses all get killed? Do they get driven off? I guess they get exiled, right? Do all of them? They do it all some very them, fast. Anyway. Some of them just get thrown out into the street without any belongings. Right. Some of them get some of them get killed. There's definitely going to need to be a truth and reconciliation committee, right? Like that's the that's Batman four. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that a, is that a historical reference? Uh, I mean, it's a South Africa reference, I guess. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, cool. but in a way, it does seem to go back on the finale of the Dark Knight with the two fairies, where the sort of moral was that like people will do the right thing when push comes to shove, and that like you know. If, if, if civilization sort of falls apart in the end, like people's better angels will will prevail, and that this says that like if you take the police away, that like people will just take over the nicest apartments immediately. Well, and not <laughs> only, know, I mean, like the conclusion of the Dark Knight, uh, you're you're being asked to to just out and out murder someone who is a total stranger to you. Whereas in the Dark Knight Rises, it's an issue of uh, of seeking out what you feel is the justice that you're owed. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. if you're if you're one of the downtrodden, you know, you see the rich as exploiting society to take from you what is your natural birthright, and and, and you're sort of reclaiming it. Whereas the end of the Dark Knight, you know, why would I? I mean, sure, they're prisoners, right? They, they've been convicted of some crime, but like, does that mean that they should die? Uh, are, are they you know more worthy, uh, or are they less worthy of continued life than I am? Just because they made a mistake at some point. Or? So is the role of the League of Shadows in the in the the Batman movie universe sort of like? Satan and God in the in the book of Job having that conversation, you know, coming down and being like, all right, if I populate Gotham with organized crime, you know, it, it's going to be completely worthless and you'll be okay with it being destroyed, right? It's like, no, okay, Batman, all right. But if I populate Gotham with organized crime and I create these artificial dilemmas that make them kill each other, then you'll agree that Gotham's not <laughs> worth redeeming, right? Like, no, no, Gotham's like, all right, all right. So if I populate Gotham with organized crime, and I create this nuclear device. I'm going to drag through the streets for five months while, while this anesthetically high madman and his army of mercenaries rule the city. Then you'll – well, OK, fine, fine. Then yeah. things will fall apart. <laughs> what, one thing to remember though about the Dark Knight is who is it that says no and throws the bomb trigger out the window of the boat? You guys remember? Well, yeah, one, of the, the, one of the prisoners. It's one of the prisoners. It's Debo from Friday. It's yeah. the prisoner who does it, right? Like, <laughs> and so, I mean, that's a huge turnaround from the last movie where the prisoner is the one who's like, you know, I'm going to do what you should have done a long time ago and is the one who shows the humanity. Here they totally repudiate that. And they're like, no, the yeah. prisoners are crazy. But you know what? I think that um, something that Schechner was saying a minute ago, that uh, the difference between the two movies is that the Joker's idea is if I tell people – do an evil thing to save your life. They will do an evil thing. You know, I'm putting a gun to your head and telling you to do evil. People will not. People will surprise you. You know, when you when you when you ask them to do something evil. And Bane's idea, which is much smarter, is I will give people the opportunity to do evil things and tell them that they are doing what is right. 
and it, that, it's it's you know. probably like the most dramatic retelling of the Milgram experiments that I've yeah. ever seen, right? Other <laughs> than the actual Milgram experiments. Yeah. Or arguably the French Revolution. You know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean the plotting was the plotting was pretty forced to the French Revolution, right? I mean yeah, Robespierre right. is just like too venomous a villain. Yeah, and having him end up getting guillotined himself is like, come on, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> seriously, right? who didn't see that coming? Yeah, I kind of thought for a while that Bane was actually going to fall through the ice after like some bridge confrontation. <laughs> See, that's a cool ending. I would like that ending. I that actually was... didn't like the way that Bane went out, where he just sort of gets shot with the motorcycle. Yeah, is that is he actually, dead? Is that? No, I'm assuming he's pretty dead. Yeah, I thought the, that mo- was... the motorcycle, which is capable of disintegrating cars, <laughs> but apparently left Bane in intact. Cars. <laughs> I thought that that was actually kind of brilliant. Is that like as soon as he's uh, revealed to not in fact be the master villain, like his uh, his his plot armor is gone. <laughs> it's like super ghouls and ghosts right yeah he loses his armor in one shot and then he's totally <laughs> yeah. exactly exactly so wait so just going back to the other question do bane and liam neeson jr actually think that gotham city deserves to be destroyed or are they just destroying it because that's what liam neeson wanted back in the day and they're gonna they're gonna fulfill his plan it's sort of like in, in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy it's like once the earth is slated for demolition they're gonna demolish it it doesn't matter why I think it's part. I think it's partly that it's like, oh, this was Ra's al Ghul's plan, so let's finish up on it. And partly as a way of of getting back at Batman. I mean, right. it's a it's a really overly elaborate revenge. It's like, oh, we're not just going to kill you. We're going to kill ten million people and make you watch it while your back is broken in this uh, mid eastern prison. But you know, it's that <laughs> that's how we roll. We're the League of Shadows. I don't know. I think you have to believe that they do think cities are corrupt and need to be destroyed. Like, if you... Villains who are sincere in their motivations are so much more interesting as as villains. And you never have them saying, like, oh, and then after this we're going to go live in, like, I don't know, Cleveland. Because Cleveland's awesome. Right? (laughs) Let's back up for a second here. Because what you said was interesting. You said that the League of Shadows thinks that cities need to be destroyed. And there's a lot of the stuff I've been reading online about, about the film is sort of this commentary on... Uh, on the on urban existence in some ways, right? And what I, I mean, if you sort of watch the movie on its surface, you think like they wanted to destroy Gotham City, right? That specific city because they see that as as uh, this just like you know this, this seething hive of decadence and crime and and corruption, right? But uh, you know, people have started to extrapolate this more and say that this is a commentary about uh, urban living, about cities. Mm-hmm. As well, and that the League of Shadows is uh, uh, and so what we're starting to hear. What what used by what you said, Jordan, is that like the League of Shadows sees cities and urban living as uh, that in and of itself is corruption, and they sort of take this to its logical conclusion is they want to what return uh, what they want to dismantle Western civilization as we know it, and then return it to some sort of like uh, more agrarian type of society. yeah. Well, the like, the the Romana Clef that we've always used in the DC Comics universe, and it's questionable how much the Batman movies exist within that same framework, but I'll I'll roll with it for now, is that Gotham City is a stand-in for the worst aspects of New York, whereas Metropolis is a stand-in for the best aspects of New York. So even though they're two two distinct... (laughs) Gotham stands in for the Mets. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you take that. Yeah, it's... (laughs) Whereas Metropolis is where all the, the Williamsburg cafes and, you know, the, the, the indie comedy theaters and the good episodes of Law and Order. Are. 
So the Ghostbusters are from Metropolis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> whereas, whereas the Ghostbusters knockoff cartoon is from is from God. Yeah. <laughs> the one with the gorilla. <laughs> Which is the title yeah. of your self-help dating book, too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Ghostbusters are from Metropolis. <laughs> Men are from Gotham, <laughs> women are from Metropolis. <laughs> All right. So getting getting back to the, the point. So I mean, we can we can view the the nuclear attack then as sort of a stand-in for like hypothetically speaking, and you know this might be a bit of a stretch in the real world, but some terrorist organization that wanted to symbolically attack New York as like a a symbol of corruption or over civilization or imperialism or or decadence or something along those lines. So by saying that you know we're not going to blow up every city in the world, but we're going to blow up this one, sort of the the mega city, the the proto or I guess like the metastasized cancer of cities in order to teach people like, hey, don't get to don't get to a mega city don't get to a megalopolis population of ten million people again or or else watch out. Although at that point, why not go for Hong Kong or Mexico City? I don't know. Hmm. The mayor of SimCity is like totally against these people. He's like, no, go for a megalopolis. You need to build a stadium and another couple power plants and then you'll be there. Uh, yeah, no, I think – I don't know. It's I'm trying to think back to Batman Begins and to Ra's al Ghul's, whether he was about sort of subsistence farming or not, like what his plan was for like urban planning. Uh, and I'm having difficulty remembering it. I mean here's here's, here's – Go ahead. Well, I kind of wondered if uh, the reason why they're able to so easily adopt the uh, the pseudo populist agenda that they're sort of hoisting as the sort of cover to their real plan is that the pseudo agenda actually kind of mirrors their real agenda, right? Like, doesn't Russell Gould in the first one basically say that like their goal is to uh, you know eliminate the forces that would corrupt the human spirit on mass? And, and I'm not sure if that's urbanization or if it's the sort of stratification of um, of wealth that tends to coincide with life in the cities. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know. They're, like they're they're a lot of rural poor, but it, they're not as highly concentrated and abused as a singular group as they are in the city, as are the urban poor. Hmm. Right. I, I mean, as I recall, in the first one, the League of Shadows claims responsibility for the sack of Rome. Right. Um, and and yeah. they do. They do say that it's uh, that like cities are a symbol of like things that oppress the human spirit. But you do get the feeling that uh, this is the particular like mole that they tend to whack in their grand uh, sort of long game of uh, guiding the human race to better and bigger things. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Well, how about a, a slightly different subject on this? One of the big themes of this movie is this sort of will to live, right? Like through all of it, Batman has to figure out how not not just to because he's been sac- sacrificial, right? He's considered himself to be kind of this sacrifice to the people of Gotham, and he has to figure out the desire to be alive again, right? And and sort of the desire to be himself again. Um, and then sort of take it down from this big social implication, this sort of social judgment against city living or political judgment against these large uh, institutions. What does it say about, like, how are we as individuals supposed to interpret the situation that Bruce Wayne finds himself in, in, in both in contrast to this political environment and also just sort of in his own philosophical, psychological, emotional life? Hmm. It's like there's a there's a line in uh, the show Louis. Uh, th- th- does anyone see the episode where he goes around with like this uh, guy that he knew back when he was a very beginning stand up who has uh, tracked him down to let him know like, hey, you're like the only guy I know in the world anymore. 
not that we were ever friends, but I'm going to kill myself and I wanted to tell you. And Louis refuses to try to talk him out of it, saying, like, look, I struggled to find the, like, the stuff that I stay alive for. Like, that, that's all you. <laughs> so what is it that Batman stays alive for is, like, apparently Anne Hathaway in form-fitting vinyl. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there are worse <laughs> answers to that question. Yeah. It's an yet argument. Yet another thing we have in common. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good question that, like, you know, if he's so despondent in the eight years between these two movies, what is it that happens in the movie that sort of gives him that will to, that lets it, it's it's been remarked in the previous two movies by numerous characters that, like, there will never be a time that he doesn't need to be Batman. In fact, that's like a recurring thing for Batman in general that, like, he can never he can never get past his parents' murder, right? He's going to be driven by this need to fight crime, but he's never going to find peace, right? That's part of that character. But in this, this is probably the only version of Batman that I've ever seen that implies that, like, he could retire from being Batman and live a happy life. End of story. And I don't know. Do, do we buy it? I mean, I think I'm skeptical. I was definitely surprised at the ending. I sort of thought that at the end there was going to be a batarang spinning on the table and we were supposed to try to figure out whether that's real or not. <laughs> 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 like, and I know it's, it's obviously real. Like that shot at the end is obviously meant to be in the movie and to tell you that he's still alive. But I almost didn't believe it because uh, it does seem pretty foreign to what's going on. It, says, it seems very strange to say that like Batman had to get to a place where he was okay with retiring to Florence in order to save Gotham because <laughs> he needed the strength to be able to look forward to something, right? He needed to, like, be afraid of losing whatever life he had left independently of being Batman, right, in order to give – because I'm trying – the big lesson is the lesson – the rise, right, is the rise that he – when he climbs up out of the pit, right? When he, like, sees Gotham is in trouble and he realizes that he needs to drop the rope and confront the fact that he doesn't want to die. And that's what's mm-hmm. going to give him the strength to get over the leaping thing and grab the little ninja warrior Mount Morimoto thing and get out of there. You know, like uh, yeah. <laughs> was that the only one? I, I know, Pete, you were there with me. You know, wanting to see, like as he reached the top of the cave there, just to have a giant sign that says "Total Victory!" Guys screaming in Japanese frantically, yeah. You know, yeah, seventy yeah, yeah. syllables that equate with "He did it! He did it!" <laughs> or even better, like now stage two. Arguably, he then had to cross a trackless desert, which (laughs) is considerably difficult. This is is actually – it's kind of a weird motivation for the Batman character. Uh, I I agree with your your interpretation of of how we're supposed to see his character in this one. But like in the comic books, Batman is most – he's like initially motivated by the murder of his parents. Uh, and then over time, that sort of dissolves and becomes this more abstract concept of um, of just right and wrong. Like, he sees himself basically as like the last bastion of of just total abstract judgment of of what is good and what is bad. And and in that, there will always be things happening that are bad. You know, he's sort of condemned by his own philosophy to to always need to be Batman. Like there's always going to be crime happening uh, of some sort. There's always going to be corruption. <laughs> Somewhere there is a crime happening? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. That's exactly okay. what I'm saying. Cool. Do you know where your children are? Um, <laughs> and, and so it's weird that it would be – it would become such an, an obviously self-reflective uh, and, and, and personal thing. Like Batman sort of slowly becomes this caricature of himself in the, in the course of the comic books and, and loses a lot of his more human elements. Um, to the point where, like, none of the other superheroes in the Justice League, like, want to hang out with them anymore. As much as they ever, like, wanted to hang out. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a point that's brought up, like, quite a lot, is that, like, you know, they're all pretty cool working with him, but they all kind of know that he's also, like, 
constantly surveilling them as well, waiting. But like he, he's got like layers of backup plan uh, already implemented and ready to go, just in case like Green Arrow decides to go rogue. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, Aquaman. Aquaman goes off the re- goes off the undersea reservation. He's got this <laughs> elaborate series of things to like you know to take him, take him up. I guess that's what you do to Aquaman. I don't know. You, uh, you know what I'm too saying? Much, uh, too much Aquaman Chow onto the surface of the ocean, and you know that's really bad. For- <laughs> He's, he's never going to stop eating, right? You have to limit his intake or he'll just oh, wait, explode. Well, are, you, are you guys unfamiliar with the I – th- I think, I think the, the storyline is the, the Tower of Babel storyline in right. the, the, the Justice League comics where – Somebody gets a hold of his plans to take out all the other members of the Justice yeah, League. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Batman actually has contingency plans for each member of the Justice League and actually Ra's al Ghul gets a hold of them and – you know, puts them into practice. And so obviously the evidence all points to Batman at first, but Batman's kind of in the middle of something else, so he's not around to defend himself. So, yes, this is the sort of thing Batman does. Like, he he does plot how to take out his friends. (laughs) It seems kind of cruel, but, like, I don't like the idea of Bruce Wayne at peace and moving out with his life and hanging out in in the cafe in Italy. You know, I I feel like he should be a character who is always driven by something. And I sort of like the ending of the first Batman where, where Katie, wow, can you believe it was Katie Holmes back in the day? Mm-hmm. You know, where she's like, God, look, God rest her soul. Like, like Bruce Wayne is your mask. Batman is who you really are. That's the truth about you. And, and this movie sort of, impl- he does get peace. He does move on. And I sort of don't want it to be true. That's actually something I was thinking about a little with this, that um, when in the prison he realizes that he doesn't want to die here. He doesn't say, I don't want to die. He says, I don't want to die here. Is that Bruce Wayne talking or is that Batman talking? Because you could look at it as the um, what has happened at the end is not that, uh, that he's decided he really does want to live, but that he's decided to let Batman die. Batman does have this death wish, but like the the death that he'd worked out for himself, where he takes the fall and becomes hated and goes into seclusion, is not like a suitable death for the the Batman side of him or the the Batman like independent agent. That uh, that Batman needs to go out in a, a blaze of glory, and at that point, Bruce Wayne can get on with the business of like you know hanging out in Europe. Well, part of the idea is, and this is something that. I think the movie tried to establish, and my one critique of no, my one criticism of Nolan would be that he tries to do an awful lot in a very limited period of time, and not always with the the equal level of success. But his point was that Gotham needs to step up and start repping itself. I guess mm-hmm. you know rep their rep their own hood, as it were. So a lot of the tail end of the movie is about Jim Gordon and John, John Blake. And the other cops, including, you know, the, the uh, Lieutenant Foley, who was sort of hiding in the back and, you know, in a, a very sort of shoehorned in plot thread, he steps up and he joins the, the charge in the end. But it's about them stepping up and doing the business for Gotham that Batman was otherwise engaged in, of, of defending it and championing it, championing it even outside the bounds of the law. So now that they've done that, now that they've been pushed to crisis and have risen, as it were, to the occasion, Batman's like, okay, I'm good. I'm jetting off to Florence and living the life I was meant to lead as a billionaire playboy. Peace. Mm-hmm. What do you that note about the, the, just one other thing on the, on the portrayal of the police in this movie. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but it's worth stating here while we're on the subject. Um, drastically different compared to the first two. You know, like a police force that is easily corruptible by whatever evil comes along. And this one, they are the saviors of Gotham, right? They have totally <laughs> redeemed themselves. 
Um, and I mean, you can say what you will about that, but like uh, at the end of the day, it's a very hopeful, uh, positive, uh, optimistic message that uh, Chris Nolan is showing the police in that particular regard, and uh, as a whole with the rest of the movie. I mean, we're talking about yeah. you know, giving Bruce Wayne, uh, you know, a life of peace. I mean, did anyone else think Matthew Modine was in league with the bad guys for most of the first half of the movie? Kind of, yeah. I got, yeah. I got a little bit of that just because of his, I guess, because of his inability to or refusal to act. And and that's been a hallmark of the bad guys in prior movies. Yeah, and also a hallmark of, like, when an alien takes over a cop's body, right? And it was like, oh, we don't have to do anything. Yeah, like that sort of terrifying moment when, like, you're like, call in the airstrike, like, and the soldier puts the phone down. It's like, oh, no, he's an alien. Like, you kept <laughs> expecting that moment to happen when it's like, oh, no. And Matthew Modine, just for reference, he's the guy from Full Metal Jacket who plays, like, the is he a lieutenant or something with the white gloves. Right, who eventually eats it for pretty much no reason because he leads like the charge of the light brigade against a bunch of like crazy people with machine guns. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I actually, I kind of assume that uh, Matthew Modine was in league with the bad guys just because he's got one of those faces. <laughs> you know, you just you look at him, you're like, oh god, I hate that guy. That's racist. <laughs> you're anti-Matthew Modinesist. <laughs> I am. Whatever. Come on, Modines. Step up. <laughs> you got to represent yourself, the Modinians. You're going to have the whole clan after you, like Matthew and Marble and <laughs> <laughs> Marble Modine. That, yeah. that's, that, that's his transvestite name. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the stage, Marble. So, so what do you? So this sort of transitions a little bit towards. We mentioned now Blake, aka Joseph Gordon-Levitt, aka Robin, right? Who's in this movie? He's set up sort of as an heir apparent. He has this parallel journey to the Bruce Wayne character in the movie. Uh, what were some thoughts about that? What did you guys think about that whole segment of the film? No feelings that are strong in particular? Or, uh... I mean, it doesn't surprise me. Like One of the things that's been established since the very first movie is this idea that Batman is bigger than one person. That the reason he dresses up as Batman is it's sort of a symbol. Um, and that you can't kill Batman and Batman doesn't have any limits. And so it doesn't surprise me that at the end it sort of comes down to like even if Bruce Wayne retires, the Batman is still out there and he can come back and somebody will put on that mask and the bat symbol is, is back in the sky. Um, right. I mean, but like, just keep in mind that like, um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, while being like a, a – he seems to be a capable gentleman. He's not a ninja. <laughs> you know, but Bruce Wayne had legitimate ninja training, right? Total victory! <laughs> samba, samba! Like, there are a few missing steps before Joseph Gordon-Levitt is ready to be the new Batman, you know? Do you think that, like, what, he has to go to the League of Shadows next? Is that what the next movie is going to be? Okay. Is it set up that – is there going to be another Batman movie with Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Batman? Is that what's going to happen? Like Nightwing Rises, Nightwing I mean, or something like that? Possibly, hmm. <laughs> I, I kind of like the idea of him sort of coming coming into it and and, be, and becoming the heir apparent, as you said. Because I, don't know, I saw this progression, and this might be me, you know, misremembering the first two films. But I feel like as the films have progressed, Batman has become more and more dependent upon sort of tech gadgetry to pull things off, and less dependent on like his own innate skill and training. Um, which is, you know, say what you will about, like, these particular movies. Like, that same parallel also happened as the Bat character went from being, like, gritty pulp um, uh, uh, gritty pulp icon of, like, the 40s to, like, kitschy TV show of the 60s. Like, we went from, like, guy that was taking down mobsters in dark alleys of this fictional Gotham to, like, quick, Robin, get my Bat shark repellent. Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> 
and that this movie this movie you know was relying more on shark repellent than than the previous two and the second was relying more on it than the first one and so forth and the idea that like you know a guy would be totally self-motivated he's got a similar uh, narrative and and he's just going to sort of bring it upon himself to train himself and and, and become this you know, this this noble warrior that fights for justice um feels more like the bat character to me than the kind of caricature of like i have a bunch of elaborate gadgets that can get me out of every situation well, so that, that brings up the comparison between Batman and Bane in another light as well, because Bane, and this is a, a fairly obvious point, but we're allowed to touch on those two, Bane is obviously set up as a, as a sort of mirrored dark parallel of Batman's origin, that he's orphaned at a young age, and he's supremely physically talented while also being a strategic genius and also a member of the League of Shadows. But obviously he comes from poverty, whereas Wayne comes from privilege. Are we are we seeing something similar with the Blake character in that, you know, he comes from a he comes from a poor background, so maybe he wants it more and that's gonna bridge the gap that millions of dollars in techno gadgets uh, would otherwise? I feel like there's a point at which the movie kind of hints that it might go in that direction, right? Where it's like, oh, Batman is too old and decadent and he needs to be replaced by this like next generation guy, right? Who's going to show up. Not, maybe Batman's not decadent. He's too complacent. Right? Yeah, either that yeah. or he needs to be broken down to right. nothing in this Middle yeah. Eastern prison and then rebuild yeah. himself. The way that like his charities, uh, they fall apart and he doesn't even realize, right? He's disconnected yeah, yeah. from the city. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then this, this guy is yeah. still going back to like his old boy's home and he's like trying to support everyone that like he cares in a way that bruce wayne doesn't anymore yeah and, yeah. and the idea at that point in the movie and this is kind of before the prison is that to me at least the bane is coming out and saying like the underclass has been you know repressed and they need to take over and then here you have the joseph gordon Leddick character who's like no like right you know working class people are capable of being responsible law-abiding appreciating the power of the system right and like doing it for good and then the movie goes in the other direction it's like no the playboy guy just needs to have like kind of an existential crisis like and then he'll come back and he'll be millionaire batman and he'll win right and like it's it's sort of like there isn't really a satisfying like uh like uh, like like the the sort of son superseding the father moment where you where Joseph Gordon Levitt is like the you know poor man's Batman literally like you know they're like <laughs> yeah and, and it doesn't go that way it doesn't become like this sort of like you know we were uncomfortable with having a rich Batman and we've replaced him with like a blue collar cop Batman because yeah. we're more comfortable with that character and we want to make more movies about him right. and they're like no no we like it how it is the climax for the movie for Joseph Gordon Levitt is when the system fails him when he gets these kids and he's going to bring them out of God. Them, and the institutions are sort of too rigid to see the wisdom of what he's saying, and they blow the bridge. And that's, I guess, you know, that's sort of his formational moment. That if he goes on to become a superhero, as it implies that he will, that's when he decides he can't be a cop anymore because he realizes that sometimes, I, I, I don't know exactly how to put it, but I guess you know, some, sometimes it's like following orders isn't enough. It's more of a Shaft origin story than a Batman origin yeah. story. <laughs> Does where the you, job. Where are you going, Joseph Gordon Levitt? To get laid? Where the bleep you going? <laughs> also, if if you're a member of the law enforcement community and you listen to the podcast, could you call in and, and let us know if you live in a landlocked community, how you retire from law enforcement? Because as far as I can tell, you have to throw your badge in a river if you're going to retire. <laughs> and if you live in like Denver. Or Houston, like what are you, what are your options? How do you how do you get around that? 
This is a if you live in if you live in Houston, do you have to drive to the Gulf of Mexico for two hours and then chuck it in the water because that, that's a bit of a trip. <laughs> can you find an oil well and drop it down that? Is it like, does it, or, or can you like do it in your bathtub? <laughs> is it just a, is it just getting like tweet about it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the process of leaving the police force becomes more and more like a Jewish right. Yeah, I was gonna say, are yeah. you Orthodox police or Reform police? Yeah. In like like, like a hundred years, they're gonna have to step on a piece of like on a light bulb and like <laughs> around the badge seven times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me, um, let me ask you a question. This sort of jumped out at me as, as interesting. That both the big blast blockbusters of the summer, uh, Dark Knight Rises and The Avengers, end with a billionaire playboy uh, becoming a Christ figure, taking a nuclear weapon with machinery that they themselves have built, and saving the city, going to their apparent deaths, and then being resurrected. Um, is this, <laughs> That's a good point. Is this a complete coincidence, or is there something about the idea that like the billionaires are going to save the cities that like they've been accused of neglecting, and and it happens to be like a nuclear bomb with like a short fuse? I don't know. It's probably a coincidence, <laughs> right? <laughs> or, or a very long fuse. In the case of Dark Knight Rises, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I that. Like, comically swinging, long. Yeah, swinging wildly. Um, I might say that like. The the Jesus dying for the sins of the world thing. Um, he is the king of the Jews, and it taps into a, if not an older, at least a kind of like broader trope of a a king being sacrificed in order to rejuvenate the world. So that like, I mean, you have um, you have Osiris, right, and you have like Wicker Man rights and all yeah. sorts of things. So if we think of billionaires as the modern royalty, like having a billionaire blow himself up and then come back to life and continue to be a billionaire. Billionaire is is sort of like <laughs> how we hope all of our current problems could be solved, maybe on some level. <laughs> so I have a rich, rich screenplay that I think people will be very. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot. A rich, of people... Did you say a Richie Rich screenplay? I just want to make yeah. sure that gets out there. A Richie Rich screenplay. <laughs> Don't laugh. They actually made a Richie Rich movie. This is a real thing that existed fairly recently, guys. Recently, I know. I saw the Macaulay Culkin one. Like, yeah, that was fairly recent. That was like you know within the. I guess it was like what twenty years ago. Yeah, twenty years ago. <laughs> yeah, but, but but this would be different because mine would be insanely dark and gritty. You are wrong, but correct. <laughs> Richard Rich. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's, it's, it's Richard the Second Rich, is what it is. The first forty-five <laughs> minutes is is uh, the first fifteen minutes is like Saving Private Ryan with uh, with the uh, the D-Day invasion, except with like a, a, a der derivatives trading. Uh, it's just like so yeah. realistic. Like actual derivatives traders are having like uh, traumatic experiences in the theater right watching it. Theaters need to like up their sound systems so that you can get the full surround ticker tape effect. That's yeah. Pete, you you have some knowledge of financial markets. If you sure. lose all your money in a few trades, <laughs> but it turns out the stock market was actually under siege at the time of those trades, you don't think they can like forgive the trades that take place during the armed assault of the stock exchange? Uh, there's a lot of reasons why. I, this is funny because in the post-movie uh, discussion, I attempted to explain this on several occasions. Uh, not prompted or asked. No one wanted to know. And in fact, when I started talking about it, no one would listen. So, <laughs> hey, so Jordan, I... <laughs> The, the long and the short of it is that there, I, I, there's no real way that what they did was sufficient to authorize the kind of trades that happened. Um, and there would be so many lawsuits over those kinds of contracts. Like, you can't just use a thumbprint. Like, you have to have a lot of paperwork that you fill out. And I mean, I guess uh, he probably would have some sort of fiduciary who, who holds the, manages those accounts for him. And, um, and if the fiduciary just, like, issued a whole shitload of <laughs> 
Oh, can we bleep that? I'm sorry. A whole bunch of, of like put options that were like way underwater for no reason. Uh, there's <laughs> a whole lot of lawsuits that can happen. And uh, tra- they do at occasion roll back trades. Like they, they do sometimes roll back trades if there's been a market failure. Uh, and, uh, and also like when people were suing um, NASDAQ over the whole Facebook thing, right? Like there's situations where you can get – you can recoup your losses if you feel like the exchange has done something wrong. Because really this is the exchange that's liable for it because the exchange is liable for maintaining the security of its computer system. And they didn't, right? And somebody broke into it and committed a bunch of fraudulent trades on Bruce Wayne's account. So Bruce Wayne can sue the Gotham Stock Exchange and try to get them either roll back the trades or like pay him a billion dollars, which they owe him uh, because it's their fault. And basically, uh, and then their insurance would pick it up because they're insured against robberies, one would hope. Uh, and also, uh, also more to that point, how how diverse would Wayne's portfolio have been such that one one day of options trading would exhaust all of it? I mean, I, I would figure if he's at least a reasonably well-managed billionaire, I'd be like, well, that completely liquidates my stock holdings. <laughs> but thankfully, I have, you know, millions in other forms of international bonds, real estate. Wait, my, R- my IRA is like, you know, $200 million <laughs> by itself. <laughs> I mean, I, the, the way he could write sufficient options to totally bankrupt himself many times over, but he would be violating a whole bunch of laws in doing that, um, you know, and it would be a big problem. So, like, so yeah, it is. It is feasible to incur that much <laughs> debt and and like badness like that fast if you are like an investment bank. But it's okay. kind of hard to, if you're just a regular person. I mean, he isn't a regular person, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> you kind of have to, for for that to work. You kind of have to assume that part of Bruce Wayne's eccentricity is he has like the most bizarrely managed wealth in the world. Yeah, he like, right? he's, like <laughs> that, like he's just a hardcore day trader for the past like eight years, and he's just like watching the you know the forex like info and just being like, oh, I've got this figured out. I've cracked it. Um, mm. Although I guess he could have been doing that for the last eight years. His, his private room is going to look a lot different. It's going to have like a whole bunch of Cheetos, right? <laughs> <laughs> like a six-pack of Heineken that he's got next to the, next to the, the TV. He's got this, the, uh, the CNBC and the Bloomberg on, right? He's got, like <laughs> Michael Caine's just like, sir, should I have your standard order of 20 cases of Red Bull sent up to your room? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, what we, and what we don't see in the and what we don't see in the completed cut of the movie is Anne Hathaway sneaking into his private room and taking down a picture of Jim Cramer of Mad Money from the, from the archery board. And being like, why was he shooting arrows at Jim Cramer? <laughs> And that's like, is, is there an origin story for him where like Batman is so angry at the bad financial advice he got during his eight years as a day trader that he like finds Jim Cramer when he's and he like he hits the button that makes like the bull and the bear sound and there's electrical shock and he becomes like bull bear man, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to be with bull bear man in it, but I don't know if I want to tell my parents that I saw that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so that part of the movie isn't the most feasible for a bunch of reasons. But yeah, it is. Like, it is kind of conspicuous yeah. that everyone forgot that someone robbed the stock exchange, and like no one brought this up as like a possible problem that needed to be addressed. Um, but so yeah. that, that that brings me to a, a, a larger point that I'm going to talk about, and this may be a little bit of outside baseball comparing the movie to the original Nightfall story arc in the comics, but. In the comics, Bane, similar to how he does here, shows up in Gotham, decides he's going to go after Batman, who he knows is Bruce Wayne, and decides he's going to break him mentally and then physically, literally, as he does breaking his back. And he does this in the, in the comics by breaking everyone out of Arkham Asylum, 
all of Batman's entire rose gallery who happens to be captured there. So Batman spends, he pulls like an all-nighter for two weeks straight, locking everyone back up. And then when he's absolutely crippled with exhaustion, stumbles back to Wayne Manor, and Bane's waiting there like, hey, how you doing? So let's have that fight now. Batman's like, ugh, all right, seriously. And then they have the fight, and Batman obviously loses. So I I get that they were trying to go for the same thing here, but my issue is, did you guys see Bruce Wayne as being very mentally broken? I mean, physically, obviously, but... You know, when when he gets the news of of his entire fortune having been liquidated, he seems to take that with almost a sort of jaunty a plume like, well, didn't see that coming. <laughs> I think the thing that Bane didn't get was that he was broken before the whole thing started. No, no, Bane, Bane totally gets it. Like he actually yeah. says it in that fight. Yeah. I think he summarizes it pretty well. He's right. Like, like victory broke you is or victory has broken you. I forget if he uses the progressive tense or not. Um <laughs> But but yeah no that that's you know Batman's basically already mentally defeated by the time Bane shows up in yeah. in, um, in Gotham right. It's well, funny because one Bane of the things that defeats uh, mentally defeats Bruce Wayne is uh, Alfred telling him that Rachel Dawes wasn't waiting for him and decided to marry Harvey Dent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which was uh, that was like one of the few scenes in there that I didn't think quite landed all of the plot points it needed to land. Maybe if I had seen uh, The Dark Knight, like, the day before I saw this, rather than, like, a couple of years before, um, and not since. But I was sort of like, yeah, I guess he cared a lot about her. It's, I don't know. <laughs> it always seems like a bit of a cop-out when they, it's, like, a affection for a sort of sex object character, right? Like a binary other. Mm-hmm. It has this sort of profoundly overwhelming effect. Because if you think about in real life the compromises that people make with like their relationships and their careers, right? Like there people, it's difficult. You know, it's tough. And but like when you consider how crazy these superheroes are about their careers, you would think that they'd be willing to make some sacrifices with regards to their relationships, right? Yeah. Like you think that maybe Batman isn't as intimately close to like his girlfriend because he <laughs> kind of has a thing going on on the outside, you know? Like um, right. that, that it would pay a right. cost there, you know, and that like. I, I did comment on the on the site when the last movie came out that every single movie Christopher Nolan has ever made, going back to Memento, is about a man who's haunted by his his dead lost love. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably true that um, an an absent love object, you know, whether whether dead or unattainable, will cause people to sacrifice things in a way that a a present love object, who you know has to use the bathroom at times, uh, will not. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, all right, so we're coming up close to the end of our time for the hour here. Uh, I, I know what it's like when your present love object has to use the bathroom. Let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, I don't. What are you talking about? Uh, so we're coming up at the end of the bat hour, although the conversation is going to keep going on the site and we're going to keep talking about it. But I want you each to give me your own personal thoughts. Like what is it that's left in, in, in your bat skull uh, about this bat movie uh, before this, this podcast comes to an end? Uh, I was sort of surprised about how conservative politically the movie feels. Not only is it very anti-Occupy, but the the ultimate evil turns out to be uh, clean, renewable energy. Yeah. That <laughs> environmentalism is going to kill us all. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's like we can't possibly pursue that until we're positive it's not going to blow up. <laughs> uh, Mark, you have any final thoughts? Uh, there's a couple. Just going back to uh, you know my my thoughts earlier about like the the, the cinematic achievement uh, or the the artistic achievement that that Chris Nolan has uh, has wrought upon us. Um, it, it, we should sell it short. 
Um, I know we're not, you know, we're not here to review this, um, but it, it is worth saying that what he has accomplished, uh, though not perfect, is uh, is really incredible. Um, and, and that's you know the, the three movies that Batman movies that he's made are going to stick with us in the way that the three Indiana Jones movies, the three um, the three Star Wars movies, the three Lord of the Rings movies <laughs> have stuck with us. I was about to say the three Godfather movies, but that's yeah. that's not go there. The other thing to say to wrap this up on, on my end is like uh, the, the, the movies are so thematically dense. It's like trying to say so many things. It's it, you know it's to have, to have it trying to have its cake and eat it too. It's saying the cops are. Are bad. The cops are good. Uh, vigilantes are bad. Vigilantes are good. Um, and, and you know, it's it's very different from say. I have to bring up Terminator too, right? And we we talked about uh, <laughs> we talked about poetic authority before about how uh, you know some movies are out there saying like this is a message beating you over the head with it, like you know, like um, in this part like the Ten, Ten Commandments of the Bible, you know, have that sort of poetic authority. This isn't that kind of movie, and it just makes it. Um, I don't know if not not satisfying is not the right word for it, but it's it's just like thought provoking and and challenging in in a way that uh, you know we sort of aren't typically um, we don't typically expect from from epic movies like this. Um, John, any? Oh, I'm sort of going through alphabetical order, grinding through just so everyone gets their shot. Um, oh, so, but no, oh, no, you can jump in, Dave, if you want. You're always welcome to interrupt me. I mean, this yeah, is something go, we established when we together. Dave, Dave, go first. <laughs> I, I was, I was just going to say that I liked uh, Mark's enumeration on the um, on the Indiana Jones and Star Wars movies that that there were three of each. Like, <laughs> three of those guys. Nice, nice. that is all. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Dave. I, I don't know. I actually, I don't, I don't pretty much agree with you, other than on the enumeration there. Like, there's this. Um, there's this thing for me that that most recently, I guess, other than than this movie, was illustrated nicely by uh, by the TV series Chuck, which I thought was really brilliant in its first season, uh, and then really fell short thereafter. Like, I feel like you can kind of tell about a half hour after uh, a movie or a TV show sort of loses its quality in that it stops coming up with new ideas as much as it starts referring to the previous good ideas that it's had. And and I think part of what made the second Batman movie so spectacular was that you know all of the a lot of the plot details that had been brought up in the first movie basically just like were assumed known to the audience they didn't need to be rehashed they didn't really give rise to major plot elements in the second movie it was it was a completely different story told within the universe that you know developed as a consequence of the stuff in the first movie but wasn't just a you know it wasn't batman versus the league of shadows again um, which the third one kind of was like i feel like they took a lot of the elements that were there in the first movie had heath ledger you know not tragically passed away i wonder if the script would have also involved a bunch of stuff from the joker again um do do you see what i'm saying and do people disagree with me on this i disagree with you a little bit i thought that this was a great movie and not uh i I liked the ways that it looked back but i do think that probably if uh you know if they could have brought back the joker there probably would have been some very interesting dynamic maybe between sort of batman's uh chaotic good bane's lawful evil and the joker's chaotic evil (laughs) it could have been a really interesting dynamic like would would the joker and bane get along i would love to see that but yeah you know this is i'm sure they didn't really know what it was going to be uh until you know, I was actually sitting in the movie theater and, and thinking about like the Joker in Arkham Asylum watching that football game on TV and watching Bay just walk out there and just like doing that sort of slow sarcastic clap he does at the dark night. <laughs> <laughs> like, he would love. I think he would love Bane's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And he would probably try to get Bane away from the League of, from Talia and the League of Shadows, right? Because he doesn't appreciate the way that she approaches it. I suspect mm-hmm. he kind of is like, "You have potential," <laughs> right? 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 Definitely. <laughs> yeah, and like blowing up the city. Like, what is that going to prove? You know, like, <laughs> like by all means, set up uh, set up Killian Murphy in his crazy court. That's brilliant. Feat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got like a cheers and jeers like rundown of like all the things yeah. that Bane did. He's probably doing something like that to a completely empty Arkham Asylum every night at like 8 o'clock. <laughs> so, here are my notes for the day, Bane. <laughs> Still like not keen on the giant bomb thing. <laughs> <laughs> and now over to Killer Croc with the sports. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any, any more any more thoughts john did you want to get in there yeah i'll jump in so having seen i think at this point every christopher nolan movie and i mean aside from one very limited release that predates <clears throat> memento but having seen all the others in the theaters pretty close to pretty close to when they opened i after a while you get a sense of what christopher nolan's strengths and flaws are you know his his strengths being these very tense very dramatic very personal existentialist noir unfoldings of the human spirit and his weaknesses being like his scripts tend to be very talky and very grim it's impossible for someone to have a revelation without talking about it preferably to someone else or without being told that revelation by somebody else like when Bruce Wayne realizes he has to let go of the rope I kind of saw that coming and I was kind of hoping that he would realize that on his own like when he got up there it's like no hang on then toss the rope off but someone has to literally say that to him and then he has to literally do that thing because right. it's a Christopher Nolan movie but it is possible and in fact it's sort of the point of overthinkingit.com to talk about the I guess particular quirks or nuances or I guess even flaws that a director has while still being ultimately appreciative of the immensity of what they've accomplished. So I guess I'm with with Lee on this one in that this is a pretty significant corpus of work right here. And while it you know, while there are some parts where the edges are a little rough, it's still amazingly well imagined. And to the extent that we go to the movies to imagine and to have our imaginations provoked, it's it's a phenomenal accomplishment. Cool, cool, awesome, Jordan. Any any thoughts? Um, I was just thinking about what uh, what John was saying about having to be told things. Like he's not even able to climb without people shouting, "Rise, rise, rise!" <laughs> I, <didn't know. laughs> yeah, I, I think that uh, my favorite thing about this movie was uh, when Bane gives his big speech about like we're giving it back to you, the people, and um, I'm not quite able to wrap my my brain around what point I think is being made, but I'll, I'll throw out a couple of, of random sort of brain dribbles. Out of all of Christopher Nolan's movies, the only ones that, uh, except I haven't seen Insomnia, but like basically the only ones that admit to the presence of evil are the Batman movies. Like, if you look at Memento, it's sort of, like there's, you know, there, there is no... Uh, there is no villain at the end, it turns out, right? Um, if you look at uh, The Prestige, it's very ambiguous. It's a good inception. Like, it, it's all people are just sort of spinning around in their heads. Um, in the Batman movies, though, you have evil. And I feel like what this one sort of states the most clearly out of any of them, but what I think is always there, is that evil is evil, but it's pure. And goodness 
this involves making compromises in order to fend off that evil, um, which is not necessarily a message I agree with or think is a good message, but it's an interesting message to see articulated so strongly. Yeah. This goes back to a conversation we used to have in college sometimes, Jordan. I remember when we would we would pose the hypothetical question, if you discovered that a supernatural demon were hunting you and trying to kill you, would that be good news because or bad news, right? Is it bad news because there's a supernatural demon trying to kill you, or is it good news because it implies the potential existence of supernatural good things? Right, like right, um, right. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my my take on it always was that like this is only good news if you think that your current existence is so wretched that any alternative would be better. Yeah. <laughs> like either either the world is sort of an unfeeling ball of rock, or there are demons chasing you, and you prefer the demons chasing you to the unfeeling <laughs> ball of rock, which I don't think is like a. I get where you're coming from, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you're just really jazzed about the idea of leprechauns. <laughs> yes, perhaps. I'm really excited about the leprechaun. You know, this world's pretty good, but it'd be a lot better with leprechauns. <laughs> even even if they're trying to murder you to get you to get their gold back. Sure. Yeah. Whatever. You know, there's another epic trilogy <laughs> they can that you can see. There's an epic trilogy along the lines of what Mark was talking about that you can watch uh, called Leprechaun that answers this very question in great detail. <laughs> and there are, there are exactly three of no more. Right? Exactly. There's Leprechaun, Leprechaun in the Hood, and Leprechaun Back to the Hood, and there are no other ones. Based, based upon yeah, none of them take place in space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's based on uh, Ptolemy's The Leprechauniad, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a gritty, it's a gritty retelling of... Anyway, sorry. All right. <laughs> All right, so I guess it's, it leaves it to me. It's time to wrap it up. We've, we've given you extra helping, a little bit of a long podcast today, but I think it's worth it. Uh, my only final thoughts are I'm really looking forward not only to the novelization, but also to the popular fan fiction turned uh, erotic subway reader, Fifty Shades of Bat, which I'm totally <laughs> thrilled for. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, nice. if that hasn't been written yet, uh, copyright me. I guess I can't do that legally, but you know what? If they can steal everything from the stock exchange, I can do that. Awesome. Excellent. <laughs> so all that remains is for me to thank our wonderful panel, Mr. M- uh, Matthew Blinky, Mark Lee, John Parrish, Dave Schechner, Jordan Stokes. Thank all of you guys for listening. Encourage you to check out the show notes. Check out the forums. Talk to us about your Dark Knight experience. Talk to, talk to us about what you think about the movie, about other Batman movies. We want to engage with you guys. We want to get the conversation going. You can give us a call at the number thing that Matt always talks about that nobody ever calls. But you know what? You know, it's hope springs eternal. But until then, uh, we we remain uh, you ever, forever your website that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. You know, the, uh, the S&M erotic retelling makes me think that Bane's mask is the perfect S&M accessory. It's a ball gag that causes incapacitating pain if, it, if, it's, if, it's, not, if it's not there. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the ball gag Norgate is what it is. Ah, uh, fair enough. <laughs> Logic gate element. Can we, as, as a culture, can we start uh, using as a derogatory term fiduciary? 
to be like, that dude is such a fiduciary. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like attempt to replace that's what she said with, or so I've been told. <laughs> Which is going along swimmingly, by the way. That My plan to do that is working quite well. Oh, man. I'm taking this podcast over and giving it back to the people. Oh, that guy is such a fiduciary. <laughs> I've, given, I've given a nuclear bomb to one of the podcast. Oh, wait, there's only six of us. So, guys, do, we, <laughs> do you guys really have a problem with an organization or individual having a plan to kill everyone who works for it? Because I don't see so much of an issue with that. I mean, like, is that really? <laughs> Pete, for the last time, we're not going to be part of your tauntine. Oh, gosh darn it. <laughs> 